This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll. Um, I'll be preaching from our Gospel lectionary. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, even though it's just the appointed lectionary for the day, it does, however, seem really pertinent to the moment. It's a story about illness. It's a story even about death. It's a story about what happens when the world seems to be falling apart around us. And yet, what is the hope and the gift that Jesus has to offer to all of us in the midst of a time like this? So please pray with me um, and then have your Bibles open to John 11. Father, we are gathered now by your Spirit, especially since we are virtual and time outside of time. We are gathered by your Spirit and together in unity praising you and also ready to receive from your word and from your word made flesh, from your son Jesus, whom you sent into the world for a mission to deliver us from death. Open our eyes to see him, reveal him in his glory and in his power, and increase our faith, I pray, through his name. Amen. One of the most oft-repeated phrases throughout the scriptures is, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not fear. We see it almost every time that an angel speaks or God himself speaks to his people. Do not fear. And how appropriate a word for us to be receiving in this time. And it it does strike me that when you read those stories, the angel or God says, do not be afraid, always at a time when there is something to be afraid of. And so it's not a scolding don't be afraid. Why are you afraid? It's simply, I know you're afraid. I know you're terrified. Of, of right, you should be. Be afraid no longer. It's an invitation into faith, a deeper trust in the midst of fear. At a time when there are many immediate fears around us, there's the fear of the pandemic itself. I mean, even the word pandemic and the idea is frightening. Even if this one does not prove to be as lethal as, say, the Spanish flu was a century ago, Still, the very idea of a virus out of control, that even for all of our technology we cannot control, is a scary thing. And it makes us wonder, well, what if, what if a disease comes along that's as contagious and more lethal? Pandemic is a scary thing. It brings up the fear of death and the reality of our mortality. Um, a couple of months ago, I was sitting with a res parishioner. And she was telling me about her her big tech company down in, not hers, but the one she works at, down in the city, uh, where they're having a diversity day. And this was a religious diversity day, day, and and she quickly was outed as about the only evangelical Christian in the whole bunch. But as the day commenced and they started talking, and the question was, well, what do you believe? It became really clear that among some of the others present, several of them, how afraid they were of death. She said, one of my co-workers said, I go to, to sleep every night terrified of death because I don't know what's going to happen to me. The fear of death. There's the indirect fears that are related to the coronavirus and everything that's happening because of it. There's the fear of loneliness. We've been self-quarantined for a couple weeks now and who knows how long this will go and some of you are less afraid of dying, but you're more afraid of being alone for the next few weeks or months, and you wonder, will I make it? How often will I give in to temptation? Will I succumb or be overcome by depression or despair? Alongside of these, there's the increasing fear and uncertainty about 
the next couple of years as the economic impact of the coronavirus. been infected, or you probably know somebody, or this may have happened to you, or you've lost your job, or your company's beginning to talk about layoffs or furloughs or a strategy to survive the next few months and years. And yet for some others of you, coronavirus, while it's affecting you, the thing that's front and center for you right now has nothing to do with coronavirus. It's that your marriage is in trouble, and your marriage even may feel like Lazarus in the grave. It's child who's wayward or simply the pain and disappointment of this last year of your life, for whatever reason, sometimes seems so overwhelming that you feel you'll be overcome by despair, and you often feel forgotten by God or, or just unknown, utterly ignored. So what does the raising of Lazarus, and, and what does our story today have to speak to these fears and, and to the fears around coronavirus or, or any at all. Um, first, I want to just tell you about a, a medieval saint, a woman who's known as Julian of Norwich, although that's not her name. Julian of Norwich was the church that she belonged to. She was the anchoress, which meant she had a tiny little cell attached to the church. Um, and she never left this cell except to go into the church to worship. Uh, so basically, she was self-quarantined. Uh, for the latter half of her life. Um, she's important. She was the first woman ever to publish and write a book in English. Um, but more than that, she was a saint who was known for what are called the, divine revel the revelations of divine love. She at one point asked for illness unto death. She said, give me illness unto death because her desire to be with the Lord was so strong. But he, he gave her illness, but not one that led unto death. Instead, um, in her illness she had received these incredible revelations. The first one she described as seeing the palm of a hand with a hazelnut resting in the center. And she knew in this that the hazelnut represented all the created world, all the universe. And that the hand, of course, was God's hand and that all the world rested in his hand. And that he cared for and he watched over and he loved all that he had made. Uh, she is the same one who said, all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. And you might wonder, is, is she just being glib? Is she not uh, actually dealing with the reality and the depth of human suffering? Uh, just for a little bit of context. When she was six years old, the Black Plague came to her town and lasted for three years and killed half the city. Fifteen years later, it came back again, and it's likely that that's what killed her husband and made her a widow at a young age. And after that point, she devoted the rest of her life to, to monasticism. So she was one who was touched by grief and sorrow in a deep way. So she was not being glib by saying, God is holding the world in his hands or, or all shall be well. In fact, this demonstrates rather a profound comprehension of the goodness of God, even in the face of suffering. And it means that she had the ability and a vision to look past the suffering and pain of this life and ability to grasp the hope that we have beyond the grave and beyond the circles of this world. And as St. Paul says, the eternal weight of glory that is beyond compare. 
And so as, as we watch the world in this time of a virus spiraling out of control, we watch the numbers every day go up. It's important for us to keep this image before us that God is watching over the world. Indeed, he holds the world in the palm of his hand, and we can trust in him. Now, this seems hard to do when the world is spinning out of control, but God has a message for us this morning from the story of Lazarus. It's a message that God is communicating to us that he is in control, that he has power, and indeed he does love us. And it's our job to trust him even when he's confusing us, even when we're disappointed in him, even when it seems like it's too late. So the the message this morning, we're going to talk about what it means to trust in God, even when he confuses us, even when he disappoints us, even when it seems like it's too late, because ultimately the control is his, the power is his, and yes, he does love us. When Jesus met, uh, or was with Martha at the end of the story, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said this, and I want you to hear this. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God. And so that's a promise that we're going to hold on to throughout this morning and throughout this crisis. Do you not know? Do you, do you believe that, sorry, uh, if we believe in Jesus in spite of our confusion, grief, and even our disappointment in him, that yet we shall see the glory of God. All right, so first we're going to talk about the fact that sometimes God is confusing. Sometimes he's disappointing to us. That is to say, he doesn't do what we expect he would do. He doesn't do what we think a loving God would do. So first we're going to talk about how God is confusing sometimes, but then we're going to talk about how even in the midst of that confusion, he makes a way for us to trust in him. All right, number one, sometimes God is confusing. At the beginning of the story, if you go turn now to the top of chapter 11, this is important backstory. We, we see that there is Lazarus of Bethany. He's ill. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. And they send messengers messengers to Jesus. They say, the one whom you love is ill. And Jesus replies, look at verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So that's really important to hold on to, that his response to them and the message he sends back to them is, this illness does not lead to death. And those messengers are going to take that message back to the sisters. And actually, as the story unfolds, they're going to deliver that message either right as Lazarus is dying or after he's already dead. They're going to say, Jesus says, don't worry, this illness does not lead to death. Important to keep that in mind. Furthermore, in verse 6, we're told that after Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he decided to remain two days in the place where he was. And the place where he was was about a two-day journey away. So Jesus decides to stay. This is all important background. Then he tells the disciples later on, okay, now we're going to Judea. Now we're going to go 
to wake up Lazarus from sleep. And they say, well, if he's asleep, let him sleep. He'll get better. And Jesus says, that was a metaphor. I actually mean he is dead. And I'm going to raise him up. And for your sake, I'm glad that we were not there because now you will see a greater glory, a greater manifestation of my power than you would have otherwise. So it's important here to realize in verse 15 that Jesus actually knows everything that's going on. He is in control. But now back to the sisters. They're in a state of confusion because Jesus has sent word back to them, this illness does not lead to death. And yet, they're receiving that message while they're sitting at the feet of their dead brother. They also know that he delayed two days in coming. That is not what they would have expected of Jesus. And you can hear the disappointment. Both Mary and Martha, when they meet Jesus, say the exact same thing. Look at verse 21. Martha comes to Jesus. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary, in verse 32, says the same thing. Mary came to where Jesus was. She saw him. She falls at his feet, and she says to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. What does this tell us? It tells us that in the preceding days, what were they talking about as they kept vigil by his bedside? If only he comes. If only Jesus shows up, then everything's going to be okay. Maybe he'll come. Maybe he'll be here in a minute. You know that feeling. You've probably been there at some point where you're you're waiting for something really important, a piece of mail, uh, waiting to hear back from somebody. Something that you are waiting on, and the minutes feel like hours, the hours feel like days. And they're sitting here watching their brother slowly fade and get closer and closer to death, holding on to hope that Jesus will come because they know if he comes, he will make him well. And he's not coming. And he's not coming. And then finally, he dies. Perhaps there's even a thought. Maybe he'll, he'll raise Lazarus too. But in those other instances, a young girl and a young man, they had both recently died. Now the days are ticking on. Now it's day four and Lazarus is dead. Now the detail that it's been four days is important. The Jews believed that the spirit of a person would hover for three days, maybe hoping for a resuscitation. But by the fourth day, the spirit was gone and that person is true. So the fact that it was four days means that all hope is gone. And at this point, and somewhere after he has died, the sisters receive this message from Jesus. This illness does not lead to death. How confusing. Now they have the double grief of the loss of their brother and the fact that Jesus didn't show up. Why was he a no-show? And the double confusion of, was Jesus wrong? He said this does not lead to death, and here we see our brother is dead. That's the fact in front of us. That confusion plus, why? Why did he wait two days? Why didn't he come right away? They're wrestling through all of this, and when Mary collapses at his feet and she weeps, you can see the pent-up grief, the waiting, the sadness, the why, the confusion is just pouring out all over Jesus and his feet. And for us, it's common to feel the same way. We look around and we say, 
why is this virus happening? Why isn't God stopping it? Of course he could. Why doesn't he? Or again, if, if your grief or the thing that's front and center for you right now has nothing to do with the coronavirus, the question of God, why are you doing this to me? Or God, why are you not doing this thing for me that I've been waiting for and, and asking for? Why isn't he doing what it seems like a loving God would do? And that's the question that's burning in our minds. And to this, Jesus says to us the same thing he said to Martha. Again, look at verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And Jesus is telling us, the promise is, if we believe in him, if we trust in him, even and in spite of our confusion and our grief, and even our disappointment in him, if we still choose to trust in him and believe in him, he says, we shall see the glory of God. That's the promise that we're holding on to. But we say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You expect me, or you expected Martha and Mary to believe what he said in verse 4, that this illness does not lead to death, when the reality of verse 17, he's been dead four days, is staring them right in the face. You expect them to believe that. How can I believe that, you wonder? I know God said X, but now Y has happened, and Y cancels out X. So therefore, X is impossible. You're asking me to believe something impossible? Wake up and smell the frankincense. Lazarus is dead. My marriage is dead. It's too late. Or look at the world around us. God clearly has abandoned the world. It's in chaos. Or again, personally, I know many of you felt this way. God has abandoned me. Confused. We're grieving. We're disappointed in God. He's not doing what we expected him to do. And Jesus says to you, in that moment, and especially when we're feeling that, even now, believe. Trust in me. Those thoughts of feeling abandoned or wondering where God is, those are normal. And even every great saint has thought those thoughts and asked those questions. Um, but sort of like the word at the beginning about do not be afraid, God says, do not be afraid when there's something to be afraid of. That's the time to say, do not be afraid. And the time to say, believe and trust in me is actually when it's the hardest to believe and it's hardest to trust in him. But if we choose to believe the promise we've been hearing all throughout, if we believe in Jesus, even when we're confused, even in spite of our disappointment in him and our grief, we shall see the glory of God. And even so, don't you love that when he sees Mary, when she comes to him, this interaction with Mary, she weeps at his feet. This is verse 32. Why didn't you come? Jesus sees her weeping, and the other Jews were also. He asks, where did you lay him? They, they say, come and see. And at this point, Jesus weeps. So even though he calls us into faith, and even though he knows that the end is going to be a good ending, yet he gives space for the grief. He doesn't chastise Mary. He doesn't tell her to stop weeping. He doesn't 
tell her that what she's doing is wrong, actually shares in her grief. Isn't this remarkable? Jesus weeps. Why? The Jews say, oh, see how he loved Lazarus. Well, that's not why he was weeping. He was weeping because he saw the grief of Mary. He was weeping because he saw the grief of those who were mourning. He was weeping because he was God, and he's seeing up close and personal what death is doing to his people. Yes, he knows the end of the story will be good. He knows that in five minutes, they're all going to be rejoicing and, and utterly astounded at the incredible, this Lazarus is back. Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he stops and he gives space for the grief and even enters in and shares it with them. That is remarkable. No rebuke from Jesus. It does say he was indignant or he was deeply moved. But actually what we see happening is, is he's angry at death itself. Again, he sees what death does to his people. And he's saying, this is exactly why I've come. I've come to defeat death and to destroy death and, to death and lift this burden off my people once and for all. And that, that term, deeply moved or indignant, angry, it shows up again when Jesus comes to the tomb. 38, Jesus, deeply moved or indignant, came to the tomb. He sees the tomb, he sees the grave, he sees the symbol of death. He sees the enemy face to face, and he's indignant. He's angry. But with Mary and those who mourn, he weeps. Isn't that remarkable? even though in five minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But let's leave Mary for a side. Let's, let's actually talk about Martha now. Because Martha is the real hero of the story, along with Jesus, of course. So we've talked about how both Mary and Martha had confusion about what Jesus was up to, what God was doing. They, they had deep grief. They even had disappointment. But now the second point is, this morning we see Yet in our confusion, grief, and pain, Jesus makes a way to have greater faith and trust in him. And he sees the seed of faith in Martha. And he nourishes and nurtures that seed of faith. And he brings along on a journey from the confusion and the grief and the partial faith to a finally a climax of full belief and an embrace of the power and the goodness of Jesus and what he has come to do for her and for all of them. He nourishes that faith in her. He brings it along. So in our confusion, in our grief, in our pain, Jesus makes a way to greater trust in him. And Martha gets it. Now, first we might wonder, why does God allow confusion in the first place? This is confusing itself. The idea that God can be confusing sometimes is confusing itself. Why would God allow confusion? Uh, well, recall... Back a, a month ago, on the first Sunday of Lent, uh, I preached on the temptation of Jesus and that he was tested by the Spirit. He was tempted by the devil, tested by the Spirit. And, and the undercurrent, and a lot of what we talked about in that sermon, is the fact that God does test us. So, it might be worth going back and listening to that sermon from Lent 1. Unbelievable. No way we could have known at that point the test and the trial that was about to come to us. And now here we are. Might be worth a listen. But the idea is that God tests us to know what's in our heart. He tests us not to destroy our faith. Actually, he tests us to build our faith. Like when you, when you lift weights, like I do all the time, um, you're actually breaking down the muscle in order to build it back up. So that season of confusion and grief, why does he allow that? 
to actually strengthen our faith in the end. And here's an important note. That in our confusion and grief, he always gives us a north star. Something that we can hold on to. There's a clarity that comes before the confusion. Think, for example, Abraham, who was tested in a mighty way. He was tested and asked to give up his only son, Isaac. But before that happened, that was chapter 22 of Genesis. Chapter 21 of Genesis is God's your offspring shall be reckoned. It's through Isaac that the promise will go to the whole world. So before Abraham is asked to give up his son, he's actually told, no, this is the one through whom the promise will come. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham trudged up that hill to sacrifice his son in faith, believing that he would even receive him back from the dead if that's what was necessary. Because Abraham held these two things together. It's Pison. And I don't know how those two things are going to equal blessing coming to the whole world through Isaac, but I know that it will. Abraham was given that north star, that point of clarity. Before he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, he was given the clarity, but it is through Isaac. Similarly, Martha is given and Mary their north stars back in verse 4. So turn back there again. In verse 4, Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. And yes, he meant for her, for both of them, to take those words to heart. And even in the face of the obvious counter-reality, they were to believe. Now, at first, Martha didn't believe, but she had a seed of faith. So she comes to Jesus, and she says, If you had been here, he would not have died Yet even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Then Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha talks about the general resurrection. I know that he will come back at the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I have the power of life in me. So then when Jesus comes to Martha at the tomb, now we're in verse 39. He says, take away the stone. And it's clear that Martha yet does not have the fullness of faith because she objects. She says, Lord, he's been dead four days. There will be an odor. So she's still not yet fully believing what he's about to do. And that's why Jesus says the all-important, again, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of at no point is he spelling it out for her perfectly. Like a good teacher, he's leading her on just at the pace that she can handle. He doesn't say, I'm going to raise him from the dead right now, even though he told the disciples that. Instead, he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And now in this moment, we can only imagine how long it was between Jesus saying that and the pause She's putting the pieces together. The glory of God. That brings me back to the message he gave. The message he sent to the messengers was, this illness does not lead in death, but it is for the glory of God. Then he said, your brother will rise again. Then he said, I am the resurrection. I have the power. I have the life. And now he's saying, roll away the stone. And now comes the climactic moment of Martha's belief. 
and she gives the word. It doesn't say this, but we assume because she's the oldest sister, she's the one who has the authority to roll away the stone. So verse 41, so they took away the stone. That means Martha believes. Jesus saw the seed of faith in her. Even in her confusion, even in her grief, even in her disappointment in Jesus, he saw the seed of faith. And he nurtured it and nourished it and brought it to this climactic moment where now she's the one who's able to say, all right, take away the stone. Now I know. And we're about to see the glory of God. So in our confusion, our grief, our disappointment, we're to hold fast in faith and trust to the goodness of God. How? How can we do that? How is this even possible? How can we trust in God like that? Well, the answer is because he is trustworthy. And this story proves it. He is in control even when it seemed like he wasn't. He does have the power even when it seemed like he didn't. And he did, in fact, love Martha, Mary, and Lazarus even when his initial response seemed like he did not. So today, if you are feeling passed over, forgotten, unloved and ignored by God, if you're confused by what he is doing or by what he's not doing in your life, you're about the coronavirus and its fallout and all the impacts and the suffering and the difficulty that is still to come in the years ahead, then I'm here this morning through this computer screen to give you this message. Yes, God loves you. He has control. He is in control. He has the power. He has come to rescue you and to give you a hope beyond this life and a hope beyond the point of this story. To demonstrate that Jesus has come to deliver us from death and to give us the gift of everlasting life in him. As great as the miracle is of raising Lazarus from the dead, it's merely a signpost pointing to a greater reality. It's an object lesson to highlight, to underscore the greater miracle than even raising a man who was dead for four days. And the greater miracle. Now, the final thing. Turn to look at verse 25. Here is the greatest miracle and the point of this whole story. Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Though we taste mortality, though we will for a moment suffer mortality, that is not the end, yet shall he live. And everyone who then lives is raised again to new life, believing in me, from that point forward, then shall never die. This is the great hope. This is the great Christian hope and the good news and the point of this story. Not many of us will die from COVID-19. Not many of us will die from its uh, after effects in the fallout. But what this pandemic is bringing up before us again is our frailty, our vulnerability, and yes, our mortality. The fact that someday and somehow, if not by this, we all will die. And it gives us the perspective that actually what we need, most of all, more than an end to a pandemic, more than a vaccine, more than economic stability, more than rescue from this disease, we need to be rescued from death. That is the ultimate need that we have, and that is precisely what Jesus came to do. Praise the Lord. 
Sometimes it's hard to believe in God's love or his goodness or his power. It's my privilege again to declare to you this morning in the words of Julian of Norwich, again, seeing the palm with the hazelnut. He created all things, she said. He loveth all things. He keepeth, that is, preserves all things. And you can absolutely trust him. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As a part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.